0: Uh, <clears throat> Romans, beginning of chapter 10. In Romans, Paul says something that we kind of skipped over when we had that as our passage a few weeks back. I was not intentionally omitting it, but I wanted to hang on till we got to here before we hung out with that some. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved, for I can testify about them, that they are zealous for God. But their zeal isn't based on knowledge, since they didn't know the righteousness that comes from God. They didn't know God's righteousness, and they sought to establish their own. They didn't submit to God's righteousness. But Messiah is the culmination of Torah, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. You'll remember, he says at the beginning of this passage, in the beginning of chapter 9, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. As we talked about before, what we have here is Paul identifying with the people of Israel, identifying himself as a true Israelite, identifying himself as one of the people of God that God had called for a purpose, to be a blessing to the nations. And he identifies himself as a servant and as a messenger, a herald of this Messiah who is not somebody that God dropped in from the middle of nowhere. The Messiah is, of course, Israel's Messiah. He is the one who has come to redeem Israel, and he has come from Israel. He, as we've been talking about, is in a sense taking upon himself the mission of Israel. And so as we've been talking about What Paul is doing here in Romans cannot at all be divorced from the story of what God has been doing in and through his people Israel over the years. The problem that Paul is dealing with, the reason that Paul is so anguished, is that the very people who should have received gladly the Messiah, Israel's Messiah, Israel have in fact not done so. This is why Paul has such great sorrow and unceasing anguish. This is why his heart's desire and his prayer to God for his people is that they may be saved. The problem, though, is he says in verse 16, not not all the Israelites accepted this good news. Isaiah said, Lord, who's believed our message? So consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. This message is heard through the word of Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. And again I ask, did Israel not understand? Well, first Moses says... I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And in just this passage here, from verses 18 to 21, Paul is going back to the law and the prophets and the writings. He is hitting the trifecta of what we know as the Old Testament. Quoting from the Psalms, quoting from Torah, and quoting from a prophet. The first is from Psalm 19, What's fascinating about this one is that usually we look at Psalm 19 as being about what the theologians call general revelation. That is and we've talked about this uh, earlier on in Romans, right? Paul talks about how uh, that those things which people need to know about God are clearly revealed to them and and uh, we have here in in Psalm 19 the, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There's no speech or language, or their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In other words, God has made himself known to all people. But here's the interesting bit. That's the first half of Psalm 19. The second half of Psalm 19 is all about Torah, You skip ahead to verse 7. It says Yahweh's Torah is perfect, reviving the soul. Yahweh's statutes are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Yahweh's precepts are right, giving joy to the heart. Yahweh's commands are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is pure, enduring forever. Yahweh's ordinances are sure and altogether righteous. They're more precious than gold, than much. Pure gold, they're sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb, and by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So Psalm 19 talks about not only general revelation, not only the ways in which the created order testify to who God is and his glory, but but it also talks about the glory of his special revelation, his word, his Torah. Psalm 19 talks about the ways that God has revealed himself to all the world, and then specifically in Torah, to whom? To Israel. And so when Paul says here, I I ask, did they not hear? I.e., did Israel not hear? Well, of course they heard. What do we read in the psalm? Their, Their voice has gone out into all the world, all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. That means that if... The Gentiles have heard. If this word has gone out all the way to the ends of the earth, then surely those who were closer in must already have heard it. If you have heard of a band, you can be sure that Zach Lefebvre has already heard of them, and it's probably already bored of them because they're no longer hip because now you know about them. So if you've heard about it, then you can be sure Zach's heard of them. In much the same way, if the ends of the earth have heard about this message, have heard this message about Christ, then surely God's own people would have heard. And they have. We we see a number of places in Paul's letters where he talks about how, okay, I've, I've managed to spread the word in all of this region, now I need to go someplace else. And here, in fact, in Romans, as we saw at the beginning and we'll see again toward the end, he's planning to go out to Spain because the word hasn't gotten that far yet, but certainly the, in the places in the, in the uh, Roman Empire, the Jewish diaspora, where Jews could have heard, Paul is saying they have heard. Well, okay, maybe they heard. Well, fine, they heard, but did they know? Did they understand Here Paul goes back to Moses, back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. This is the the famous song of Moses. It is a literary unit here. I want us to hang out in this as a whole just for a bit. Just again, the, the scene here is this is Moses right before the people are to enter the promised land, and he's not. And before he blesses the tribes, he has this song to sing. He recited this song, we're told, from beginning to end in the hearing of the whole assembly of Israel. Listen, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching fall like rain, and my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. You can imagine Moses in a rap battle, can't you? I will proclaim the name of Yahweh. I praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. So his theme from the beginning is God and what God is like. But then he says, they have acted corruptly toward him. To their shame, they are no longer his children, but a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay Yahweh, you foolish and unwise people? Moses was not looking to get his contract renewed at this point. Is he not your father, your creator, who made you, and formed you? Remember the days of old, consider the generations long past. Ask your father and he'll tell you, your elders, and they will explain to you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the people, according to the number of the sons of Israel. For Yahweh's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted inheritance. In a desert land he found him in a barren and howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him, he guarded him as the apple of his eye like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions. Yahweh alone led him, led Israel. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the heights of the land and fed him with the fruit of the fields. He nourished him with honey from the rock, with oil from the flinty crag, with curds and milk from herd and flock, and with fattened lambs and goats, with choice rams of bashan and the finest kernels of wheat. You drank the foaming blood of the grape, which for Baptists means grape soda. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. Filled with food, he became heavy and sleek. He abandoned the God who made him and rejected the rock, his Savior. They made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols, They sacrificed to demons, which are not God. Gods they hadn't known. Gods that had just recently appeared. God your Father did not fear. You deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. And so Yahweh saw this and rejected them. Because he was angered by his sons and daughters. I will hide my face from them, he said, and see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. They made me jealous by what is no God. They angered me with their worthless idols. Well, I'll make them jealous by those who are not a people. I'll make them angry by a nation that has no knowledge. For a fire has been kindled by my wrath, one that burns to the realm of death below. It will devour the earth and its harvests and set afire the foundations of the mountains. I'll heap calamities upon them and spend my arrows against them. I'll send wasting famine against them, consuming pestilence and deadly plague. I'll send against them the fangs of wild beasts, the venom of vipers that glide, in the dust In the street, the sword will make them childless. In their homes, terror will reign. Young men and young women will perish, infants and gray-haired men. I said I would scatter them and blot out their memory from mankind. But I dreaded the taunt of the enemy, lest the adversary misunderstand and say, Our hand has triumphed. Yahweh hasn't done all this. They are a nation without sense. There is no discernment. In the immediate context, of course, Moses is referring to what? What story? The only G-rated orgy in the history of cinema is in Ten Commandments when they do what? When they make the golden calf, right? But then this also is going, is, is looking forward to the story of what happens when Israel goes astray, finds themselves in exile, where they... Abandon the worship of the one true God, and they chase after idols, and not just exile. It happened when, in the time of the judges, as we read, the people did what was right in their own eyes. There was no fear of God in them. They just did what they wanted to do. God said, okay, have it your way. Why? Because they get tempted to worship as they shouldn't because they put their trust in things other than God. They are a nation without sense. There is no discernment in them. If only they were wise and would understand this and discern what their end would be, if only they knew where this road leads. I mean, seriously, how could one man chase a 1,000 or two put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them, unless Yahweh had given them up? And again, Moses here is telling the story of some of the battles that Israel had fought. See, their rock's not like our rock, as even our enemies concede. Their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are filled with poison and their clusters with bitterness. Their wine is the venom of serpents, the deadly poison of cobras. Have I not kept this in reserve and sealed it in my vaults? It's mine to avenge, God says, I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near, and their doom rushes upon them. But Yahweh will judge his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees their strength is gone and no one is left slave or free, he'll say, now, where are their gods now? Where's the rock they took refuge in? of gods who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Oh. Huh. Well, why don't you let them rise up to help? Well, let's just see if they can give you any shelter. Now, see now that I myself am he. There is no God beside me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal and no one can deliver out of my hand, I lift my hand to heaven and declare, as surely as I live forever, when I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasps it in judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood while my sword devours flesh, the blood of the slain and the captives, the heads of the enemy leaders. so rejoice, O nations with. His people and let all the angels worship him, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and his people. On the one hand, this seems pretty straightforward, right? God's going to take vengeance on his enemies, God's going to have compassion on his people. except it seems like the categories shift a little bit along the way. For one thing, when he's talking about his people, most of this song of Moses, he's talking about his people's unfaithfulness. He's talking about their idolatry, their wickedness, all the things that have led them to trouble. And so, although he talks about the Blood of the slain and the captives, the heads of the enemy leaders, talks about taking vengeance on his adversaries. He also says to the nations, rejoice with Israel. And he says in the verse that Paul cites, Verse 21, they made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols, so I will make them envious by those who are not a people, like Israel is. I'll make them angry by a nation that has no understanding, like Israel ought to. On the one hand, God has chosen his people. He has set them up. He has given them every blessing and every advantage and protected them from the nations who are the enemy, yet at the same time, what we have in the song is a declaration that God's people can act like his enemies, and if they do, then they're going to end up being treated as such. And what's more, God can use these nations to make his point to his people such that At the end of the song, he can tell the nations to rejoice with them when God executes his justice. And I think it's the same thing that we've seen throughout this passage in Romans with all the places in the Old Testament that Paul keeps harking back to. It's the same story of God bringing his salvation to the whole world And when his people fail to be his agents, as he's called them to be, he is going to make his plans happen. He'd prefer for it to be with their cooperation, but if it's going to be against their will, he's going to make that happen anyway. And I think this is the kind of thing he's talking about in the Isaiah passages that Paul quotes next. This is the end of Isaiah, chapter 65. This is part of Isaiah where... Clearly, we're talking about a people who have been exiled. And what he says in the chapter before this, the short chapter 64, before we get to 65 that he's quoting, this is the plea of the people. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. Lord... Would you come down and rescue us? Will you save us? Will you give us relief, deliver us from our enemies? I mean, you know, before, verse 3, when you did awesome things we did not expect, you came down the mountains, trembled before you. We know you come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remembered your ways, and, and we know when we continued to sin against them you were angry. So how can we be saved? We've all become like one who's unclean, or all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. Yet, Yahweh, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We're all the work of your hand. So don't be angry beyond measure. Oh, Yahweh, don't remember our sins forever. Look upon us, we pray, for we are all your people. And then here's God's answer. I revealed myself to those who didn't ask for me. I was found by those who didn't seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I. I'm right here. All day long, I've held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways that are not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face, offering sacrifices in gardens, burning incense on altars of brick, people who sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigil who eat pork chops with a nice pan gravy. Well, that's probably actually the best way to understand that verse, by the way. They say, keep away, don't come near me, for I'm too sacred for you. These people are smoke in my nostrils. They're a fire that keeps burning all day long. And see, it stands written before me. I'm not going to keep silent. I'm going to pay back in full. I'll pay it back in their lips, both your sins and the sins of your fathers, says Yahweh, because they burned sacrifices on the mountains and defied me on the hills. They'll measure into their laps the full payment for their former deeds. God's going to take care of business, he says. But, this is what Yahweh says, as when juice is still found in a cluster of grapes, and the people say, don't destroy it, there's yet some good in it, we can make grappa, so will I do on behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. I'll bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, those who will possess my mountains. My chosen people will inherit them, and there will my servant live. Sharon will become a pasture for flocks, the valley of Achor a resting place for herds, for my people who seek me. But as for you who forsake Yahweh and forget my holy mountain, you who spread a table for fortune, who fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny, I'll destine you for the sword, and you'll all bend down for the slaughter. For I called you, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. You did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. God called. Some responded with obedience. There is a faithful remnant, but then there are those who did not, those who forsook the one true God and followed idols and worshipped false gods. And I don't think it can be any more clear that simply because they have the credential of having been God's people at one time or having been born into the community of his people, that does not prevent them from being treated as his enemy when they reject and forsake him. And I think what's especially important to note here in chapters 9 through 11 is Paul speaks time and again of Israel or Israelites, people of Israel. There are 19 times in all of Paul's letters that he uses the word Israel or Israelite. 12 of them are found here in chapters 9 to 11 of Romans. I think there are two main reasons why. The first is that in Romans 9 to 11, and we'll see sort of more of a, 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 a view of this, a 30,000-foot view of this next week, but Paul is linking this story about God's dealings with his people and with the world that he created and the work that God gave his people to be a blessing to the world that he created. He's, he's linking up the story of what God was doing then with his people, Israel, with what God is doing now. With his people, Israel. What God is doing in and through Israel now in the present time, in light of what God is doing through Messiah and the Holy Spirit. The most important thing to remember, I think, when we read Paul is that he is far more interested in God than he is in you. He's telling a story about God and God's righteousness, first and foremost. The second reason is that Paul is not only linking God and his actions and his dealings with his people then, and now he is linking Israel then to Israel now, and he is talking about the continuity of the identity of his people. And I think Paul is saying that just as the entertainment reporter should have known who Samuel L. Jackson was, so Israel should have known Messiah was when he showed up. After all, remember in chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs is the divine glory. Theirs are the covenants. Theirs is the receiving of Torah. Theirs is the temple worship. Theirs is the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them, from the people Israel, is traced the human ancestry of Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. And when Paul says in chapter 10 that I can testify about them, these Israelites, that they are zealous for God, but it's an ignorant, rebellious zeal. Paul is testifying to that because that is exactly who he was. That is Paul's own story. Paul zealously persecuted the followers of Jesus because Paul was sure that Jesus wasn't Messiah and that worshiping him and following him was dishonoring God, and so Paul zealously persecuted the church. And what Paul is saying here is, yes, they're zealous, but just because you're zealous doesn't mean that you are going in the right direction. You can be very enthusiastically traveling the wrong way down the road. He says the zeal is ignorant. It doesn't submit to God. It doesn't go after God's righteousness. It seeks to establish its own... And so in verse 16, because that zeal was ignorant and rebellious, the Israelites have not all accepted this gospel. They've not all heard. And there's a play on the words in the Greek that's hard to convey in English. But they heard but didn't really hear. They knew, but they were ignorant. And this is Paul's indictment. This is Paul's indictment of his people. He does not at all distance himself or separate himself from this story. He says, I am part of this story and I was doing the very same thing myself. But now, now I see. And I think one of the most important things for us as we read this difficult passage of Romans, chapters 9 to 11, is that we understand The bigger story Paul is telling from all of these references to Torah and to the prophets, to the writings here. Paul's telling the story of God's faithfulness. He's telling the story time and time again of his people's unfaithfulness. And of the fact that God then did receive his people when they repented and turned back to him. That's God's prayer for his people. That's Paul's prayer for his people, for his own race. But what we also see in all these passages is that while there are some who turn back, inevitably there are some who don't. You can choose to be God's friend or you can choose to be God's enemy, but it doesn't seem that he has a whole lot of frenemies. You can pick, but you've got to pick. Lord God, we pray that as we seek to faithfully follow you as your people, that we would not be people who hear but don't hear, not be people who know but don't understand. We pray that we would not be ignorant and rebellious, but we pray that we would faithfully receive what it is that you have for us, and we would faithfully fulfill. The responsibility you have given us to be your people, not only for the sake of being your people, but in order to be a blessing to the entire world that you have created. I pray that you would give us the grace to die to ourselves and live to you, to humbly seek your face and follow after we ask in the name of Israel's Messiah Jesus Christ our Lord Amen. Amen